Uh, we are going to uh, transition. We're going to continue our series here this morning, and we're in a series called Dear Church. And uh, Dear Church is our, we're going through this letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, we've been studying through this, and in, in Corinth, uh, we're not going to get all the way through this letter, by the way, before Christmas, before the holidays. So we're going to finish in the next two weeks. We're going to go through chapter 11, and then we're going to continue on. Uh, we're going to actually take a little pause and for our Advent series, where we will be focusing in on reminding ourselves of the significance of the good news that Jesus came to be with us. That's what Christmas is about. It's actually not about the gifts. It's about the gift that God gave to us. And so we always take December to orient our hearts and remind ourselves of the story and just how how good that good news is. And yes, that is just in two weeks we're starting that series up. So we are going to, um, after that, we'll put this, this series through Dear Church on pause for a little bit, finish it up in the new year. Uh, but today we'll be in chapter 11. Now, one thing that as maybe you've noticed, if you've been attending a lot of these and been uh, kind of a part of this whole series, you might have noticed 1 Corinthians is not exactly the, the easiest uh, book to teach through. It, it has plenty of what we could call in ministry the landmines. Be careful you don't stand on that when you're teaching because we don't know how it will go uh, with the rest of the congregation. And that's one of the reasons why we decided to go through this book. I don't know why, but that is why. <laughs> Uh, but because we really believe that if it's in Scripture, we want to understand it, and we want to understand how does this really make a difference in our lives today as we are trying to live out our faith in a world very much like the church in Corinth. But one of the things that, as we've gone through a lot of these, it's important that we kind of understand, sometimes we, we talk about uh, levels of understanding or, or our conviction, and, and some things we come to in Scripture are, are, we, are opinions, we read it and we say, yeah, you know, this is what I think about it. And, and those are, we want to hold those loosely. There, our opinions, someone else may have a different opinion. We know in this room, there's certain passages in scripture that we, we think certain things about it. The next level there is what I would actually call belief, which is I've studied this, I've thought about it, I really believe this about this passage, but I still know there's some, there's some debate, and these might not be things that if I, it turns out to be wrong, that I maybe if I get to heaven and God says, hey, you missed that one, that okay, life still goes on, it'll be okay. And I guarantee you there are things that we believe that we'll get to heaven and Jesus is going to look at us and say, really? <laughs> That's what you got? Um, but we want to hold those with a little more conviction, but we still hold them somewhat loosely because they're not going to affect our salvation. And then the third level, and this is a generalization, is conviction. These are things that we say, hey, this we believe to be fundamentally true, and these are things that are really important. One thing I love about Seacoast is that we have uh, nine statements of faith that these are our convictions. These are things like Jesus is God, that the way to heaven is through Jesus, that we believe the Bible is true. We believe that Bible or God exists as a trinity. Uh, we believe uh, that, well, there's nine of them. You can look them up. So <laughs> lost my way somewhere in there. <laughs> but these are things that for us are convictions. That we would say, hey, if, if, you don't believe, if we don't believe that fundamentally, that there's, there's a breakdown in our faith. Or that you would say, hey, you can attend this church, be a part of it, but the lead pastor isn't going to uh, teach against any of those convictions. Because those are convictions. Now, why do I start off with that? Because when we read certain passages in Scripture, we need to put that, we have to understand, are we talking about a conviction? Are we talking about a belief or opinion? And sometimes it's somewhere in between, and, and there's things we don't want to divide over. 
Now, I was, in, in preparing for this, I was looking at uh, one uh, church consultant talked about some of the things and arguments that he's had churches approach him about and his organization, and, and some of the fights that churches have had, and some have divided over some. So I thought we'd start off with some of those today. Sound good? Here, here's some things that literally churches have fought about, have votes about, and some people have left the church over the results. So one is this, there was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. So, fight over that. One church fought over whether they should build a children's playground or use the land to build a cemetery. So, <laughs> I just think, just do both. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Here's one. A church had a dispute over whether to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. <laughs> I, don't even know what, I don't even know where to go with that one. Was that, like, why wasn't there any in the first place? They're like, hey, we just don't think biblically. All right, so, uh, there was an argument of whether, uh, and a vote, a church vote, whether they should remove the clock in the worship center. So, there you go. You think, where'd that come from? It came from the pastor when he sees all of you turning around, looking at the clock. <laughs> One church fought over which picture of Jesus to hang up in the foyer. I don't even know who took those pictures, but pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> oh, man, there's, there's a lot of good ones. There's a lot of good ones. Um, <laughs> sorry, I better move on. This one church debated, they fought over, should we use the term potluck in our church, or should it be a pot blessing? <laughs> there's no luck in the family of faith. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, this is a good one. Several churches have fought, and some people have left the church over their choice of which coffee to serve. In, in particular, churches were moving from folder, Folgers and debating, should we go to something like Starbucks? <laughs> people have left the church when they switched to Starbucks. So there you go. Uh, we could keep going on. Here's one more, and I thought I'd, I'd, I'd leave this one for you. But an argument over whether to have gluten-free bread or, communion, or, or not for communion. They fought over that. Just so you know, here at Seacoast, we actually use gluten-free bread. So there you go. So if you're gluten-free, you can take communion. <laughs> but we thought we would do that for you, so there's my way of announcing it. <laughs> this other one, I, I don't even know like, why this. They fought over whether they should sing happy birthday every week. <laughs> I don't know. Like, when, when, I don't know. That's a hard answer. How often should we sing happy birthday in the worship services? So as you can see, <laughs> there are many things that we uh, can sometimes divide over. And I, I brought up silly examples, of course. Throughout the history of the church, there's been many other things that, um, that become theological issues and sometimes conviction. And so when we read the passage like one we're reading today, this is one that can bring some division. This is one that people and their understanding has caused division on it. And whether some of them are divisions over opinions, beliefs, or convictions, that's what we're going to navigate through. And I want to tell you today, I'm going to leave you with some tension because part of the argument that Paul sets up, he's going to extend it a little bit more in chapter 14. But I'm going to get us to a certain place and leave you in tension and then we'll have the holidays and answer it later. So... <laughs> 
But before we get into it, let me just show you a few. When anytime we're reading scripture, and this is for you to read on your own or for us as we as a teaching team, we gather together, we study these passages, uh, and, and as we look for them, these are certain questions or things that you always want to bring in mind when you're trying to understand a passage and, and interpret scripture. So I have a few ideas I'm going to put for you on the screen. These are not all of them, but these are a few. So these are principles for understanding. So the first is this, try to put aside your own personal preferences and opinions as much as possible. So whenever we approach a a text, we all are coming with our bias. We're all coming with ideas based on how we're raised, where we're raised, maybe a church you grew up in, how your family was structured, uh, the culture you live in, and, and all of that plays a role in how we read scripture. And what we want to do is to the best of our ability, set those aside. Now we can't set them all the way aside. We, it's just almost impossible. But you want to be aware of those biases. And there's times when you read something that if you're really uncomfortable with it, you need to say, okay, what is, what is it that's making me uncomfortable? Is it something, a, a deep conviction of truth, or is it just something that I prefer? And, and please know this, and, and this is a hard one, is there are times when if we understand truth correctly, you will be offended. It won't fit with culture all the time, okay? And, and we just have to be okay with that. And, and because if, we, if everything that God believed and everything of who God is fit perfectly with your understanding, then you might be creating God in your own image, Okay, so if God is infinite and he's so much higher than us and holier than us and more wise than us, then there's things that we're just not always going to fully understand. Does that make sense? So we want to, best of our ability, put aside our personal preferences. Next one is this. We always want to ask, to whom was this written? Who is the audience that this was written to? And when was it written and why was it written? Now, I, I spent some of my undergrads studying international cultures, all this thing. My graduate work was in this. My postgraduate work was studying Bible, archaeology, language, trying to answer, help to answer these questions. Most of you maybe don't have that background, but there's plenty of other places you can look. If you, if you say, hey, I don't quite understand this, there's a lot of commentaries, a lot of information online, but don't just make it up in your mind. I bet they were like this. Well, let's try to understand what they were like, when, especially when we come to these things that are hard to fully grasp. So we always want to ask to whom it was written. Now, here's the thing. Nothing in the Bible was written to people living in San Diego in the 21st century. Okay? Nothing was. Now, is it useful for our lives, for correcting, training, rebuking, and, and righteousness, and building us up? Yes. Are there universal principles that matter? Yes. But it wasn't written to us in modern world with our modern culture and all the stuff that we go through. If it was written today, it would probably be written in a different way, but the general principles, the truths would be the same. So we want to ask, okay, why was it written? What does it make sense in their world? Everything that was written was intended to make sense to the original audience. So we scratch our heads probably a lot more than the ancient world did. They probably read it and said, I know exactly what you're talking about. So just keep that in mind. The other one is this. Uh, when the understanding is blurry, use scripture to make it clear. So when there's something that you say, I'm not sure what this really means, another way to say this is interpret scripture by using scripture. Instead of saying, well, that's kind of confusing. Let me put my spin on it to clear it up. Or let me just see what my favorite author says. Let me see what the biggest celebrity says about this. That'll clear it up. No, what we want to do is we want to use, use Scripture to interpret Scripture. 
when we're able. Now, there are some things in Scripture that are written. They're not in very many places, and we read it, and we say, I have no idea how to apply that. There's no other place in Scripture, and some things we're going to just be left with some tension. But when, we, when something is blurry, use Scripture to make it clear the best we can. So we want to say, huh, is this the only place that this is ever addressed? And if it is, it's likely addressing a very specific situation. If it's addressed in multiple places, we start to say, okay, what is the theme? What are we trying to get from this? So we always want to use scripture to make it clear. Now, I want to give you a quick example, and this is uh, from the Jewish faith. And I'm not saying this as any sort of criticism, but I want to show you, even among, I studied with a rabbi in Israel who we talked about this, and this can show how sometimes we can, you can get off course, and it's now a cultural thing, which we're not going to criticize for it being cultural, but show you how it got there. And, and the Jewish faith, and some of you are Messianic Jews who, who live kosher lives to this day, and that's awesome. We affirm that for you if that's your upbringing. Uh, but there's a law of kosher that says don't eat meat and milk in the same meals. Or don't even prepare meat and milk in the same utensils or on the same table or anything like that. And restaurants in Israel to this day, most of them are kosher. And if they serve meat, they're not going to have any butter or any dairy or anything in that same restaurant at all. Now, that's based on a, a verse that's repeated in three places, but it's really the same verse that says don't boil a young animal in its mother's milk. Now, when we hear that, we think, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Remember, it's not written to you today. I don't think many of us do that. But it's probably the understanding of that is it's just, that's cruel. The very thing that gave this young animal life shouldn't be the thing that brings it death. That's most likely the, the principle there. That has, as the rabbis through the ages looked at that, said, what does this mean? And now what they've gotten to is hundreds of laws of what that means to not have milk and meat together, to have kosher laws. Even when we lived in Israel, we had a milk sink and a meat sink, one to wash milk dishes, one to wash meat dishes. That's in the extreme case. Now, what's interesting is if we use scripture to interpret scripture, and again, I'm not criticizing a whole culture. This is now a cultural norm. I think it's cool that people want to embrace it, and it's an identifying factor of their culture. So, but in Genesis chapter uh, 18, we see God, the angel of the Lord, sitting down with Father Abraham, eating milk and meat together. And even as I studied with this rabbi, there was a student in the class who said, what, do you guys see what's happening? She was a Jewish uh, uh, student and said, I've never seen this before. Do you guys see what Abraham's doing? And the rabbi kind of went like, yeah, it's a problem. Let's move on. <laughs> now, we can point that out, but I'm sure we can point to many things in our own lives as Christians where we, instead of using Scripture, interpret Scripture, we say this is what it probably means for us, and now we've created a whole bunch of rules and laws surrounded around something that to us, maybe it's still blurry, but we've made it clear on our own understanding, not using Scripture. Okay? Tracking with me on that? Okay. So, let's use that and jump into the text. But before we jump into the text, there's one other principle I want you to know of. Always bathe it with prayer and come to the Lord and ask for understanding. We're told in scripture, when we need wisdom, let's seek the Lord. So let's do that. God, we thank you for this morning and I pray for your wisdom. And Lord, even when we come to passages that may be culturally uncomfortable, I pray that you would bring your grace and peace and speak truth to us. So we thank you and give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, Be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. Okay, we're just going to stop there today and 
We're actually not. If you're familiar with this passage, the next verse says this. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of, every wo- of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. So let her cover her head. (laughs) Welcome to Seacoast Church. Good to have you here this morning. (laughs) So this is why I tell you, when we come to something like this, we want to come with wisdom and we want to ask the right questions. We want to dive into it. And, we, and this is one of those passages that I seriously was looking at the, the series and thinking, can I prolong this? But really the truth is, there's no, and kick, the, you know, kick this down the road a little, but the truth is, this is there's good truth in here that's really life-giving. But this, these passages and the rest of this chapter can be something that's been used inappropriately at times to take life. But here's something that we want to do. So we want to ask these questions. Who's, who was it written to? The people in Corinth. When? First century. Why was it written to them? So we know that in the first century, there's some norms that happen. We know that according to Jewish culture, that women, especially married women, always had their, heads co- their hair covered, always, always. To this day, the Orthodox Jewish community, women will cover their hair, always, in their cu- culture, especially first century. In the Greco-Roman culture, especially the Greek culture, and in Corinth in particular, women covered their hair. It was their culture as well, okay? So when we ask that question and we see women covered their hair in the first century in the Jewish and the Gentile culture, and now in the church we have Jews and Gentiles who have come to Christ who are being taught that in Jesus there's, there's this breakdown of cultural norms where there's no longer this hierarchy or subservient and there's that in Christ it says that men and women are valued, but Paul still speaks about this, covering your heads or not covering your heads. So there's this local context where covering the heads and women covering their head was important to their local context. Now, why did Paul write this? We believe that in the church and, and throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's been talking about freedom. He's saying, you have freedom in Christ. There's a lot of things you can do now that before you couldn't do. You're saved by faith in Jesus, and now the, all of these walls are being broken down. So there's a lot of freedom in Christ. So why did he write this? We believe that men and women who were, uh, and I'll talk about what they're talking about, praying and prophesying, prophesying in the church, where there was women saying like, hey, we're now free in Christ. So there's no more distinction. So we don't need to wear our head coverings in the church. So this is the actual thing that Paul is addressing. Now this might be something, if you're new to scripture, you might be saying, Ryan, why are we spending time on this today? Because I don't think this probably has a cultural translation, does it? Do we have to still wear hats in the church? And I do know for some, if this is where we want to take our background into effect. I know that for some, that people wearing hats in church can be offensive to some people in here. It's just the way it is. Some of you wearing a hat right now are going, really? <laughs> but um, 21st century San Diego, for most it is not offensive. Now, I've heard people 
Um, actually, I don't even know who they are. I've seen some comments throughout my 20-some years in ministry where they would say, hey, I don't think that people, uh, the guys should have hats on on the stage. If we're going to directly interpret that, we need to say that then every woman who's on the stage needs to have a hat on. Tracking with me? If, if we're taking it literally like that. So we need to go deeper and say, what is this trying to explain? What is he trying to talk about? Now let's look at some, the troubling part of this passage. Because really what he's dealing with is this. In their culture, when the women were not covering their heads in the worship service, it was not just offensive in the church, but even outside the church. And it was a distraction to people who are saying, what's going on here? This is actually scandalous because the women who didn't have their hairs uncovered were either young women, unmarried women, or in this, and by this time, most of the women in the church were, were either children or they were married, by the way. So that's culturally, understand that too. Most of the women, when they didn't have their hairs co- hair covered, was promoting saying, I'm available to you. The prostitutes in Corinth would not cover their hair. It was a sign of their occupation. So now you think of that and bring that into the church, and you say, oh, okay, I can see how this starts to become confusing, less so for us today. So let's look at what Paul, so what is the principle, though, that Paul is bringing out? Look at this again, and he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. This is a very difficult passage to understand. Because the word head can mean several things, and scholars are, I kind of debate on what is, what's the correct understanding of this. It can literally mean the physical head, obviously not the case here. It can mean the uh, kind of the head of state or uh, the higher up than the other person. It can mean the origin or the source of as well. And, and most scholars argue it's somewhere around there, the source of, because here's why the, the reasoning. I want you to understand that Christ is the source or the origin of of every man, and this is mankind. That he is the creator of. We're being created by God. That scripture from the beginning indicates that Jesus was there at creation, that all things are created through him, for him, by him. So we have, he is the creator. So mankind is the source of Christ. We've been, he is the origin of us. He is the creator of us. Man is the origin of a woman. Now, what does that mean? Alluding back to Genesis chapter 2, where it says Eve was taken out of the side of a man. Now, obviously, we know biology now, and Paul is going to bring that up later on in the same chapter, where he says, hey, um, guys, you now are actually coming from a woman as well. So this was just the original creation. And then he says, God is the origin of Christ. Now, what does that mean? If we believe in the Trinity as eternally existed, as there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so what could this mean? Is it origin? Is this, what is this relating to? It means that the Messiah, Christ here, meaning Messiah, has been sent by God. The origin of the Messiah, the, I, the plan was sent by God. Now, could this also all be the head of, like head of state? It could. All of this could mean it, except for it becomes problematic in the second one. Because this doesn't mean, and let me just tell you a couple things, it does not mean, it does not mean that all women are below all men. That is not what this says. And this has, some will interpret that. This does not mean that. Here, even the language switches a little bit when it says man is ahead of woman. That could be the husband is ahead of wife. Now that, I'm sure culturally, all of you in here said, oh, I feel really good about that. <laughs> See, culturally, even saying that, some of you become uncomfortable because what does that mean in 21st century? That comes with a lot of baggage. 
It comes with years of, of some, uh, sometimes abusive relationships, sometimes domineering relationships, and it's not the godly way of what, if that was the application. Now, I'm going to leave that tension a little bit for chapter 14, so I'm sorry, I'm going to leave that for you, because it also relates to the church and some of the offices in the church. And I want to just kind of leave you with that. But what I do not want you to leave here thinking that this is teaching that women, you are all subservient to men. That is biblical. That is not biblical. It's not taught in this passage. There is some indication throughout scripture that we believe that men and women have different roles within the home and and probably within the church. But this does not mean that anyone is greater than the other because we're going to keep reading the rest of this passage. But what I do believe is what we're seeing here is a model of humility. So in the local context and the universal principle that we see is there's humility that's being indicated. If Jesus, if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, what do we see about Jesus? He willfully gives up his role for the good of mankind. He willfully serves. There's a humility there. We see in Philippians chapter 2, it says, do nothing out of vain, uh, empty Selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others as better than yourselves. Have the same attitude that Christ had. Though being very nature, God gave up equality of God as something to be grasped and made himself a servant. So the universal principle that we're seeing, why does Paul start with this idea that Christ is the head of us, that, and then it ends with, but then God or the Godhead is the head of Christ or sent is the origin of the Messiah, the Messiah willfully and showed humility and said, I will give up my rights. And why? For the good of humanity, even. Starts with Christ as the head of man. What does that mean? We should willfully be servants of Christ, humbly serving him. In the case of a marriage relationship, as we'll talk about in chapter 14, could this mean, and we do believe there's some indication of that there's a willing sacrifice for one another. Now I say one another, and I do say that. Because I don't want you to think that the man is saying like, hey honey, serve me, I'm the head of you. I just read it in 1 Corinthians. I'm watching football today. This is going to be great. I'm so glad we went to Seacoast this morning. (laughs) We also want to read the rest of scripture because where it's blurry, we want scripture to make it clear. Paul, the same one who wrote this, said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Oh, he gave up his life for her. He laid down his very life. He didn't say, hey, come serve me. He said, I will give my very life for you. My love for you is going to cause me to give up of all of my rights for you, for your good, because of who you are in the eyes of God, that I am here to serve you. That is what husbands are. So husband, before you say, hey, I'm the head of you, say, the wives should say, great, let's read Ephesians 5 together. How are you giving up your life for me today, honey? Watching the football game. (laughs) How does that play out? So let's use scripture to interpret scripture and see the whole understanding. We do believe throughout scripture there is a difference in roles in male and female. It seems to be the case from the very beginning. Again, we're going to dive into that deeper in chapter 14 a little bit more today. But this different roles does not mean one is more superior over the other at all. It means that God has created an order in a way that is only wise in his eyes. 
It doesn't fit with our culture so much today, but there's some universal principles here. We want to talk about it. We want to understand them. Now, if Paul wrote this today, would he write it differently? I think so. so. <laughs> I think so. But what this doesn't mean, again, this, or what it does mean is he's talking about humility, our posture in the church, our posture towards one another. This is consistent in the whole book of 1 Corinthians, by the way. Willing to love each other and give up what is your right. Women, in this case, did they have the right to prophesy without their heads covered? Yes, they had the right to. But Paul's saying, out of humility and love and respect for your husband, probably in this case, instead of flaunting your freedom and even, in their case, probably having others say, wait, is she available or not? Her head's uncovered. That was not a sign of respect in that case. And so saying willfully, even though you have the right to, don't do that out of love. It doesn't make sense. Now, I want to point out something else here, and this one might make some of you uncomfortable in a different way. And again, we have to go through the rest of the, the, the book to get better understanding, but notice what's happening here. Women are praying and prophesying in the church, and Paul doesn't say don't. It would be easier for him to say, women and, uh, who are praying and prophesying, with, just don't do it. Just don't. You can't do that in the church. That's not your right. No, this is a gift that is given to the women. It's a spiritual gift that pops up in chapter 12. So there's a th flow of thought. And praying can be done in private, but prophecy was a gift given to people for the building up of the local church. It was when people would share wisdom and truth from God for the benefit of the local church. And women, in this case, are participating in that act during worship. Some of you, maybe you're from a different tradition and all of a sudden you think, wait, that can't be. But that's what he says. So some people have accused Paul of being misogynistic and a chauvinist and that he, uh, his whole kind of writing, some people have said, Paul is just as anti-woman, but Paul is actually anything but anti-woman in culture. He was breaking conventions and culture, beginning with Jesus, breaking down the barriers and actually elevating women. And this time and place in Corinth, women had the status just barely above a slave. Hopefully, as you've been listening through this, Paul has elevated them. We, we read in Romans chapter 16, there are seven or, or even more than that of women mentioned who are involved, actively involved in important parts of the church, that they're serving God in many ways. They're elevated in ways that they never were before Christianity. And so when we take it out of context and don't understand first century, we might say, man, I can't, look at Christianity. It's so backwards. Actually, it's so revolutionary. It's so ahead of the times. So men and women here were prophesying. Now, I alluded to, and we're going to get to it in chapter 14, there are probably some areas in the church where Paul would say there should be differences of roles. Now, we'll talk about that, not this week. Live with the tension. Thank you. All right. Let's go on. What's the next part of this? So he says, so it's better for you just to have your head shaved or cut off. Again, he's saying, so in other words, that doesn't make sense. Why would you want that? Verse seven, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. <laughs> Don't you love these verses? Why did I do 1 Corinthians? There's so many... For man does not originate from woman, but from woman for man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but ma woman for man's sake. Okay, what? 
There was a groan. I love that. There was like, when we take verses out of context, a lot of harmful, hateful things can happen. We can misapply things in ways that are not godly. That's what I see here. Really, okay, you want to understand what he's talking about? Uh, the language here most likely, and I'm, I'm going to kind of skip ahead a little, try to s- speed through this because I'm taking a lot of time. <laughs> here he's saying mankind was created where the glory of God were made in the image of God. So now Paul started with Genesis chapter 2. That woman came out of man. Now he's alluding to chapter 1 of Genesis. Man and woman were created in the image of God. They're the glory of God. Male and female make up the image of God. So we are the image of God. We're the glory of God. Then he says, woman is the glory of man. This is not saying a woman is, she's my glory. This is not elevating the man again above her. It's saying in the, it, the way creation is, is woman, came, if it came out of man, it's in the image of a man. Not literally saying your wife is the image of you, husbands, but he's talking about order of creation. Mankind was the image of God, we're his glory. In the order of creation, he created a woman in the story, and that was the image of, of man. Now, the glory of man. Why does that matter? As he goes on. And then he says, man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Talk, obviously talking about the original story. Because everyone else understood biology. Now, man was not created for woman's sake, but the woman for man's sake. What? In the original story of creation, it said that man was alone, and it was not good for man to be alone. I can affirm that in my own life. <laughs> and so God creates a helper suitable for him. That can sound really condescending. Helper is the same word often used for God with Israel. The strong person to stand side by side with this person. It is not a subservient role. It is not the servant. It is not the one that's supposed to do all the chores and serve the man. The man can sit on his throne. It is a helpmate who walks beside the man and is suitable for him. Somebody strong. Used as the same imagery for God throughout the Old Testament. The same word. So this is not a demeaning verse. Actually, it's saying that here's someone adequate to stand by the man because guess what? Nothing else in creation equaled. Any of the animals, nothing could equal the, uh, was suitable. But a woman, man and woman together, bearing the image of God. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. The most confusing verse in the whole chapter. I can talk, we can talk about this for a whole sermon. And let me just tell you most likely what it's probably saying. He's going back to the, uh, as she prophesies, because of the angels, they're watching this worship and it honors them. Because in creation, the angels were there honoring God in the order of creation. This is, that's an inadequate explanation for you this morning, but we have to keep going. But it, it, it's a weird little statement in there, but most likely because the angels are there worshiping, it even would be offensive to them, essentially is what he's saying. However, in the Lord, verse 11, neither is a woman independent of man, nor is man independent of a woman. So you see where he's going? He's clearing up. Don't think that because we're talking about order of creation here, that we're saying that one is Uh, higher up and more important than the other. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. So he's wrapping up this question. And the first thing he started with humility. And the next thing he's talking about is God's glory. He's talking about God's glory. In the worship service, 
the argument he's making is if man, man is the image of God, and now this isn't, when you see me, it's not like, hey, I look like God. With a man's head uncovered, it pointed culturally, pointed their hearts to God. When the woman had her head covered, instead of being, when it was uncovered, it would point to creation, to mankind. So his argument is, as she covers her head, it takes our attention off of her and it points to God. The point in both cases and in the worship service, the glory belongs to God, not to anyone on the stage. Not to anyone who's leading. Because the goal of our lives is that we bring glory to God the way we live and interact. And the argument he's making is culturally, this would be a distraction in people. And even this is culturally what they'd say is, man, look at her beautiful hair. Look at this beautiful woman. Now you might say, well, that, even that's rooted in, in just chauvinism and stuff. Yeah, maybe, but that was their culture. So Paul's saying, let's not do this because the point is that glory belongs to God and God alone. That's what he wants us to understand. As he wraps it up, he says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head covered? He keeps going back to this. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given as a covering. But if one is in, so right there, by the way, this is where you make a cultural translation. Okay? Let's not say, see, so if men have long hair, they're unbiblical, and if women have short hair, they're unbiblical. That, that's not, that's, you gotta take it in the line of his whole reasoning here. Cultural norms for them in that day, yes, that was more of the norm. If he was writing it to today, I don't think he would say the same thing. Okay, so there are churches who've made this a line in the sand through the ages, less so today, but they used to. I, I, my first mentor went to a seminary. I won't tell you what seminary he went to, but it was in the late 70s. And he told me he showed up on the day one and they had to wear a suit. And he uh, was a former football player, and he had kind of long hair, a beard, and he wore a white leisure suit, <laughs> which I thought, I was just picturing that, like, that's awesome. <laughs> but, uh, but he showed up, and he said, while he was standing there in the seminary on day one, and they were given kind of the, uh, the, the beginning of it all, kind of talking to all the new students, he said, hey, you in the pajamas, in the long hair, you get to the back of the room. That's how he started off his seminary experience. Because culturally, they thought there's no way this could be a godly person looking like that. So when we, tra- when we take something and we translate it without making sure we're making the right translation, we can make a mistake. In the end, Paul says, verse 16, if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, none of the, nor do the churches of God. He ends this by saying, hey, you can keep arguing this all you want, but just know Paul ends it by saying, like, this is just how we're doing it right now. This is, how, this is the practice in the churches. So don't be contentious about it. Again, we want to translate this to today. So let me just remind you, we've talked about before, to apply a passage. We have four quick questions for you that I want you to learn to ask. Who is God? So you want to look in this passage. What do we know about God? Is God this vengeful, hateful God who is irrational and makes up rules just to demean other people? If that's our belief about who God is, then we're going to read this passage in a certain way. But if we're going to say God is holy, he's personal, infinite, loving, he's wise. He's a God of order. He's all-knowing. He's gracious. 
If that's who our God is, that should, when we know, okay, that's what scripture says is our God. That should make us, we should read that into this passage. Don't make God somebody different on one passage, okay? So that's what, so we want to start with that. The next one is, what has he done? What do we know about him? Well, he's created the world with order and purpose for our good and for his glory. If God has created the world for our good and for his glory, then what he does is not to make life miserable for us, but to bring life to us and to others. If that's consistent with who God is, then we want to read that into the text. The other thing, we, we could go on with what he's done. He sent Jesus to a broken world to restore and redeem and reconcile us, bring us back into relationship with him. He's a life giver. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He's not a lawgiver. He's a li- All of these things, we can say that's what he has done. The next question, who are we based on what he has done? In this passage, I'd say we're his children. We're created for his glory. We can reflect his image to the world around us in God-honoring ways. This is good for us. We could say we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're valued. We're loved. We're important. This is what we learn throughout Scripture. We have gifts that's given to us. In this passage, men and women have spiritual gifts that are given to them. And nowhere in this passage does Paul say the man's gifting is better than the woman's gifting. He says they have gifts. They're different. Men and women are different. But they're gifted. They're loved, fearfully, wonderfully made. That's what we know based on what who we are based on what he's done, and then how do we respond? Here in this passage, I'd say we can live out our giftedness and our calling with humility, with love, respect for one another, for God's glory, not for ours. See, in the church, even when I started with all these debates, all these fights, most of them had to do with our own glory. What is my preference? What makes me more comfortable? None of those questions were, what's going to bring more glory and honor to God? It was, what do I think? What's my rights? Over and over again, we're told to give down our rights because Christ did. For the good of one another in our world that's hurting and broken and longing to find hope in Jesus. Now again, there's, there's deeper application. We'll get to it. But for us, Let's learn to try the best we can to read scripture in the proper way, to ask the right questions. And we find time and time again, it gives life. It doesn't take life. I'm gonna invite the worship team to make their way back up. And uh, I just wanna share this one thing I heard this week actually from Carol Hobson when I had the privilege of speaking at Mops this week with our young ladies. So that was fun for me to feel very out of place and it was good. But beforehand, actually, their word for the week among their leaders, sorry, Carol, I didn't ask permission to share this, but she was sharing the word for the week for them was humility. And she said something that I loved. I, I, I remembered it and said, this doesn't mean that we are a doormat. It means we're a welcome mat for the Holy Spirit. I thought it was so cool that if in the church we saw ourselves humility as we serve one another, as we serve our community, it doesn't mean we're a doormat. It means we're a welcome man. It says, Holy Spirit, use me how you want for your glory, not mine. Because we believe in you, that's where life is truly found in no other place. It's not found in me. You kidding? It's not found in my understanding of things. It's in you. And so humility, love for God's glory, we're not doormats. We're welcome mats.
for the Holy Spirit to move in us, through us, and around us. That's what Paul's getting at. That's what he wants to see in the church. So I want to invite you, let's all stand together. In a sign of unity, in a sign of love, as we sing a final song together, we want the song to be about Jesus and who he is and not us. So, and what he's done, not what we've done. So let's just start this time. God, we thank you that, Lord, even when times we, we get it wrong in understanding your word, Lord, thank you that you keep bringing us back. A time and time again, Lord, that we're reminded that you are so good and, and the way you've set up this world is so good. And Lord, you're for our flourishing. And Lord, so we want our lives to be for your glory. So thank you for what you've done. Thank you for reminding us that it's not about us. And Lord, this right now, we want to be a welcome man for your spirit to move. So we just give this last song to you as our act of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.